Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Today we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. But before we open up God's Word together and look at that, I want to, I want to pray for us. Would you join me? Father, I just want to thank you so much for the privilege it is for us to be a part of what you're doing, not only here in this town, but all over the world. Father, thank you for what you're doing in the nation of Latvia and for how you have sovereignly connected uh, this congregation in Oklahoma with what you're doing there. Father, thank you for the privilege of the eight individuals from Wildwood who were able to join together with others and go and invest and pour out their lives into uh, 75 orphans. And Father, thank you also that as they shared the hope and the good news of Jesus Christ, thank you that 25 to 30 of them have responded in faith. And Father, we pray for them this morning. We pray that they would continue to grow and develop in their relationship with you. Father, the same blessings that you have given to us in Christ, you have packed within their lives as well. And so, Father, we pray that they would mature and grow. They would be difference makers and world changers in Latvia because of the blessing they have received in Christ. Father, we thank you for just the privilege of us gathering here, and we thank you that we don't have to gather here today and guess or give opinions about what, who you are or what you want from us or for us. But Father, thank you that in your word you have spelled out a picture of who you are and you have given us clear direction. And I pray today that we would see you and we would respond in faith. And I pray that you would protect me from saying anything you wouldn't want said today, Father. But if I do say something you wouldn't want said, I pray that it would just quickly be forgotten. But Father, any words I share today that are your words and your truth for us, I pray that we would remember them, we would believe them, we would apply them in faith we might be shaped more into the image of your son. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, before we look at Ephesians 6 together this morning, I wanna reflect a little bit with you about a segment of world history that is probably familiar to most. I want us to reflect a little bit about 1930s Europe and specifically about the Nazis' impact on that area of the world. See, as the Nazi movement grew in Germany, they wanted to expand their influence beyond their borders. They wanted to control all of Europe and subject it to their vision of reality. One of the first countries that the Nazis progressed into was the country of Poland. And as they went in and took the nation of Poland and uh, in, in, in gained control of it. More than just soldiers went into that country, but as it came under German authority and German rule, there were businessmen that followed closely behind the SS troops. Uh, one of those businessmen that followed into Poland in 1939 was a man by the name of Oskar Schindler. Uh, Oskar Schindler saw the opportunity that Poland was, an opportunity to make some money. And so he went to Krakow and he bribed his way into ownership of a factory and he began running that factory on the backs and the sweat labor of a number of Jewish people who had been forced into ghettos in that community. And as time wore on, Schindler became richer and richer while his employees, the 
Jewish people there became more and more oppressed. Eventually, uh, Schindler realizes the inequity of what is happening, and he, he begins to shift his, his focus from how he can profit from the Jews to how he can serve them and help them. And this is the true story that was told in the, the 1993 movie, uh, Schindler's List, that won an Academy Award. Maybe you've, you've seen this film. But it's interesting that the, the, the picture was directed by Steven Spielberg, and I was reading about it this week. You may not realize that Spielberg at first did not want to make this movie because he thought, how in the world could I tell this epic story that details the Holocaust and six million lives lost? How, how can I give that story any justice at all without it just being another Hollywood bloodbath? And so Spielberg, when he eventually decided to take the film, uh, made a few decisions in telling the story that became very effective in communicating uh, his message. One of the things that Spielberg did was he filmed the whole movie in black and white. Largely, that was to give it more of a documentary feel. It didn't feel like a faraway story, but it felt like something that really happened uh, because it did, one of the decisions that he made. But he didn't film the entire movie just in black and white. There was a, a notable exception to that. There was one character that Spielberg inserted into the story uh, to help convey his message. And he didn't insert this character by giving her a line to say she has no speaking part. And he didn't insert this character by giving her a name. We did not know her name. But he inserted this character into the story merely by painting her coat red. And as the Nazis are moving through Krakow, rounding up uh, Jews and taking them to concentration camps, we see this little girl in a red coat running away, and we, we hope that she makes it. But sadly, later in the film, we see a red coat strewn among dead bodies, and we realize that her mission to escape was unsuccessful. And when you saw the movie, if you saw the movie, no doubt tears filled your eyes as they filled mine. We cared about her. Why did we care about her? We cared about her because in a sea of six million people being rounded up and headed to death, we noticed her. In a world that was black and white, there was one in color, and that drew our attention so that we took notice of her, we cared about her. And it made a difference in the way that we felt and the way that we, we treated her, ultimately. Now, you and I live in a world that is black and white with evil and struggle and difficulty. And yet the God of the universe comes into this world that is black and white and difficult, and he paints red those that might otherwise be marginalized. He paints them red in Scripture so that we will know that God sees not those who are in power only, but he sees those that this world seeks to marginalize as well. That means that God sees you if you feel today like you're a person coming from a position of power, or God sees you if you feel today as you're coming as someone marginalized and forgotten in this world. God sees you. God sees the orphan in Latvia that our team went to minister to. That's why we go. We care because God sees them. He knows them. If you were one of the 75 people who volunteered yesterday with a peanut butter and jelly jam, we, we go there because because God sees and notices those in our community that might otherwise be marginalized, the, the homeless population, those in physical need. God sees them and notices them. And at times in Scripture, he paints them red so that we know that they're there and so that a different order might take place 
within the church. And this morning, we're going to see uh, two groups of people that would otherwise be marginalized that are justified in Christ. And we're going to see those by looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. So if you've got a Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 to 9 together today. I'm going to read them for us, and then we'll, we'll back up and, and study them a little more in depth. This is what it says in chapter 6, verse 1. Paul writes and says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Now, in these nine verses, we're going to see a couple of things today, a couple of things that will show us God's care for those, God's coloring red the robe of others the world might have forgotten. The first thing we're going to see is this. In Christ, the marginalized are justified. In Christ, the marginalized are justified. Now, we we see this. You might not at first glance notice that in chapter 6, verses 1 to 9, but it's helpful to place it within a little bit of context. See, the, the church in Ephesus was made up of various, various groups of people. Different groups of people, some of which would have been people who would have been in power, and others would have been groups of people that would have been somewhat marginalized or oppressed in their world. But in the Ephesian church, they were sitting side by side in the same congregation. We've seen this throughout our study of the book of Ephesians. We go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. We saw that there were these two groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles, The Jews would have been those who would have been coming from a position of spiritual power. They were the ones that had the expectation of the Messiah. Jesus himself was a Jew. They were those who were recipients of the promises of God. They had the Old Testament. They were coming from a position of power. The the Gentiles were coming from a position of spiritual oppression in terms of the Jewish or the Christian movement that was birthed out of that movement. But yet in Ephesus, they were sitting side by side in the same congregation. We saw that back in Ephesians chapter 2. We also saw in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, that there were men and women in this congregation. The Apostle Paul writes and speaks directly to both. He speaks to husbands and he speaks to wives. Uh, And this was something in men and women in that culture. Men would have been coming from a position of power. Women would have been coming from a position of somewhat oppression. And yet, 
The Apostle Paul speaks to both. He calls both of them under the banner of mutual submission with some specific commands. Husbands were to sacrifice and love their wives as Christ loved the church. Wives were to submit to their husbands in a different way following his leadership, but both of them were to see value and to care for one another. They were different people, but they were in the same congregation, Jew, Gentile, men, women, also old and young. In this culture, uh, old or, or parents would have been people of power, specifically fathers. Fathers in this culture had an unbelievable amount of power. In a, a Greek or a Roman way of thinking, if the father didn't accept the child, even after the child was born, the child could be just turned away. I talk about a late-term abortion. If the father wouldn't pick up the child after it was born, they would say this child was, was put away, given away either to be exposed to the elements or turned into a a prostitute or a slave. The father had that kind of power. In the world of the first century, there was a great difference between old and young, between parent and children in terms of their rights and privilege. And yet, in the church in Ephesus, we see Paul speaking to both in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. They both have right. They both have value. They both are recipients of the promise of God in the same congregation. We also see this same division of different people in free people versus slaves. Uh, the first century world, the Roman Empire, a third of it, 60 million people were slaves at that time. That is a, a lot of slaves. So the church in Ephesus would have been made up of both slaves and free people, and yet slaves were people who had no rights. And their masters were people who had all rights, and yet here they are sitting side by side in the same congregation, recipients of the same blessing of God, recipients of the same forgiveness, the, the deposit of the same Holy Spirit. The church was made up of various and diverse people. Uh, our church is made up of various and diverse people. There are some here today, you feel like you're coming from a position of power. Your parents were, were pastors. You grew up in the church you went to Falls Creek. You were baptized in the River Jordan. I don't know what your story is. There's some of you that feel like, man, my, I've got heritage. I come from a position of spiritual power. There are others of you who are here today, I feel marginalized. I, I hope you don't know my story. You might reject me because of a past sin, because of a family lineage, because of a lack of knowledge or, or understanding, because of an ethnic issue, whatever it is, there are some here that feel privileged. There are some here who feel marginalized. And in the church, we sit side by side. And you might wonder, why is that? How is that? Well, it all goes back to what happened to us in Christ. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, in verse 28, he says this, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying there is that in the church, in Christ, the same blessing is extended to everybody, whether you feel marginalized or whether you feel empowered. In Christ, the same provision is extended to all of us. Jew, Greek, male, female, slave or free. And what happens as that same blessing and privilege comes to us is the same spirit of God resides within my heart as resides within my son's heart. 
The same Spirit of God resides in my heart as resides in the heart of the, the children of Latvia that trusted Christ at the orphan camp. The same Spirit of God resides in my heart as resides in the heart of whoever else we might see as marginalized or oppressed or insignificant. The same Spirit of God is in all of our hearts. And Paul writes and encourages us as we have the same Spirit that this Spirit might control us in Ephesians 5, 18, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks. The Spirit's controlling influence over us would have us not be controlled by our base-level human desires, as alcohol might encourage us to be controlled. But the Spirit of God controls us so that, verse 21, we might submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What does it look like for the Spirit of God to be controlling the life of a person? It has very relational consequences. If the Spirit of God is controlling me, then my life will look like a life that is submitting to those around me in the most basic relationships. The relationship with my wife in chapter 6 would tell us the relationship with my son. And so what we see as we get to chapter 6 is we see another installment of the relational consequences of a life that is controlled by the Spirit of God. And what happens when the Spirit of God controls us is it causes there to be harmony and unity between two people who might feel like one is marginalized and the other is empowered. Paul speaks to both, and he says that both are to submit to one another even children and parents. Paul writes in chapter 6 and verse 1 and, and speaks directly to children. He says, hey, children, obey your parents. I, I think this is a, a beautiful thing, a beautiful thing. The fact that he's, he's writing, yeah, I think as a parent, right, you're like, yeah, of course you think it's beautiful. This is what's money. I can go home. I can teach that this afternoon. No, he writes and he speaks directly to children. He doesn't say, hey, parents, make your children obey. What does he say? He says, children, obey your parents. He speaks directly to them. In the congregation of the Ephesian church, there were kids that were sitting there. You might imagine as this letter was written and it was read, if Paul had hand-delivered it, you might imagine this as the moment in the, in the service where Paul might have gotten down and said, hey, kids, come here, come here, come here. Hey, I know many of you have trusted in Christ. I know that Jesus is who you're trusting for the forgiveness of your sins. And that's fantastic. Because of that, God is aware of you. He knows you. And you know what? He's calling you to something. He's calling you to show an obedience to him by obeying your parents. He speaks directly to them. Now, remember, in the first century world, children would have been marginalized. The parents had all the power. The kids didn't have any. But in the church, it's different. The kids are called front and center, and they're, they're called up. He says, hey, you're in Christ too. The Spirit of God is inside of you too. And as the Spirit of God is inside of you, it can control you to submit to your parents, to show your love and care for them by submitting to them. What an amazing statement in a world that did not see their value. He says, children, you are too obey your parents. He says you're to do this in the Lord. In other words, your act of obedience to your parents is ultimately an act of obedience to, to Jesus. 
they were morally responsible. He was calling them to obey because of their relationship with him. Incidentally, because of this modifier, qualifier in here, children are not called to obey their parents if their parents are asking them to do something that is counter to what God wants. Parent forbids the child from trusting in Christ. Child doesn't have to obey that command because ultimately a child's allegiance is to Jesus, not the parent. But for much and much, much of the time, the parents are not asking children to do something counter to what Jesus wants. He says it's right for parents, for children to obey their parents. There's something right about that. No, parents have more spiritual knowledge than their children typically. Parents have more life experience than their children typically. They, they see the, that this action leads to that consequence more easily because of the experience that they've had. Therefore, it's right for the child to obey the parents. There's a, an order that God has given to the world in this way. And I think it's, it's fascinating for us to see the implications of this. You know, last week we had a, a number of of children baptized here at Wildwood. We had uh, seven people who were living in their parents' home, uh, minors, uh, here being baptized. There were probably some who were like, I wonder if these kids will really get it. I wonder if they really have faith in Christ. I wonder if they'll remember this when they're, you know, 25. I wonder if they're too young. You might have had some of those thoughts. Parents, you have those thoughts. The parents of the children who were baptized had those thoughts. We struggle with these things. Here's what's fascinating to me. In the Bible, children are spoken to directly. Can a child trust Christ? Absolutely. Can a child be the recipient of the same spiritual blessing that you have? Absolutely. You know, as a parent, I try to do lots for our our, our son. He has a place to live. He has clothes to wear. Um, You know, I I went out. We've got some shoes on tax-free weekend. Uh, yesterday and made sure they were shoes that he liked. Uh, he has toys to play with. There's all these things that we try to do to provide for our kids, right? You know, you know what what's totally blows me away as I read this and think about this is you know what God has done for my son? Because he's trusted in Christ, God has given him the Holy Spirit inside of him. What a gift. The Holy Spirit resides within my son. He's a recipient of the same blessing. He's in Christ. Children have this opportunity. They're morally responsible. It's okay for us as parents to call them to obedience to Christ, to follow us, to follow Christ. Our son, you know, he sins occasionally. Your children probably do too. I don't think that I'm alone in that. Last night he had a particularly tough night, and my wife said, hey, Josh, I want you to go in your room, and I want you to pray and confess that sin. I remember when she said it, it was, it was even surprising to me when I heard it. But then I was like, yeah, that's great. Good advice, Mom. Um, because it's true, he's morally responsible. His obedience to us is directly connected to his obedience to the Lord, the one who saved him. Children are valued by God. Why do we have a, a children's ministry back here, a big building, 300 volunteers? We had a training last Wednesday night. Why, why is it? that we have that. We have it because children are valued by God. You see, he speaks directly to a group that was otherwise marginalized, and he, he speaks value to them. He calls them out. He calls them up. He quotes the fifth commandment 
from Exodus 20. Honor your father and your mother, the first commandment with a promise that it may go well, you may live long in the land. It's a generally true statement. We all can think of examples of a child that was obedient and loving to their parents and died young, but the general principle here is still true. A child that is disciplined will typically live longer than a child that is undisciplined. You can think of all of the vices and problems that could come as a result of that. See, that the child is called up. But furthermore, the father is called out. Or better, we could say, the, the father and the mother. Uh, in verse 4, it says fathers, but that word fathers is used elsewhere in the New Testament in, in Hebrews chapter 11 to refer to both Moses' mother and father. So I think parents is an appropriate application of this. Uh, parents are called to do something specific here. It says, parents are called to not provoke your child to anger, but to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What is that command all about? Well, I think it goes all the way back to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21. Christians are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What are parents supposed to do with their kids? They're to submit to them. Now, you might get a little antsy as a parent as you hear that. Does that mean that I have to back off and let my kids do whatever they want to do? No, that's not what submit means. What submit means, remember, is to structure our lives to support. The role of parent as it relates to the child is to structure your life in such a way to support the child, not to crush them. That's this idea of not provoking them to anger, to not exasperating them. There are a number of behaviors that parents can do, whether it's abuse or neglect or setting unrealistic expectations, um, always being critical, never encouraging. Those kinds of things can exasperate a child. We're not to do that. Instead, we're to instruct and discipline, to build up in the way of the Lord. Parents submit to our kids by, by leaning in to helping them and building them up in moments when we don't want to. There's times that something is happening in your home and you want to just go, man, I'm going to pretend like I didn't hear that. There's things that are happening. You're coming home, you're like, I really want to take a nap this afternoon. I don't want to, I don't want to dial in in that situation. But parents, we're, we're called to submit to our children by helping them grow and develop to be all that God has created them to be. You see, the, the marginalized are justified. Children are given dignity and value. There's roles here and implications for children and for parents. But he goes on. The next section of verses deal with another group of people who were marginalized in the first century, and that is, as it says in this translation, bondservants. A, a very uh, accurate translation of that term would be to call them slaves. I mentioned earlier that the first century was, was full of slaves. In the Roman Empire, a third of the population were slaves. And you know, we, we hear that and we're familiar with slavery in its vile forms as it existed in the United States. And we might wonder, what are the differences? Well, in the United States, sadly, uh, slavery dealt often with one race or one ethnicity. But in the first century, there were a number of reasons beyond ethnicity why someone might have become a slave. If somebody was uh, a part of a nation that was conquered, they might become a slave back in, in Rome. If somebody falls into great debt, they might become a slave to the one that they are indebted to. If somebody stole from someone else, they might become their slave to repay 
the, the, the debt that they created in the life of the one that they stole from. Um, and through all of these varied means, there were a number of slaves, some 60 million in the first century. And unless we think that the experience of a slave was necessarily good and rosy, the experience of a slave in the first century was very difficult. Think of this, the worldview of what it meant to be a slave. Aristotle wrote about 300 years before Ephesians was written, but Aristotle wrote and said this about it. He said that slaves were tools who could talk. The only difference in a slave from a rake or a hammer was their ability to speak. That was the world of the first century. That was the perspective of slaves. So they were not someone that was feeling empowered. They were someone that would feel oppressed. They were somebody that felt marginalized. And yet as Paul writes this letter, he speaks to them directly. Can you imagine that? He's speaking to them and and giving them dignity and value. You can imagine this room that's made up of masters and slaves, and, and Paul says if he was gonna deliver this letter in person, he might say, okay, hey, hey, slaves, stand up. Hey, let's go out there and have a little heart-to-heart. Let's go talk. And, and the master's, what? What are you, you're going to go talk to them? I mean, you're the apostle. Stay here and talk with us. And Paul says, we'll talk in a minute. Slaves, come on, let's, let's go spend some time together. That's what he does in this letter. He speaks to them directly. Those that would have otherwise been marginalized, Paul sees them as a person of value. He sees them as someone, regardless of their vocational status, regardless of the oppression they were experiencing in this life, he sees them as someone with equal recipients of the spiritual blessing in Christ. It wasn't that Paul had more of the Spirit of God than them. They had the same Spirit of God. It wasn't that Paul was more forgiven than them. They were just as forgiven as he was. And so Paul speaks to them directly, and he gives them value, just as he did children. And he says, slaves, be good slaves. Now, we'll talk in a minute about why that makes us uncomfortable. But just for a moment, see what he does. He says, hey, because of the fact that the Spirit of God is inside of you, because you can be controlled by the Spirit of God, instead of seeking to assert your own right, Submit to those that you work for and do it with fear and trembling and a sincere heart as you would Christ. He goes on, he says, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as the bondservants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. He says, don't just act like you're serving. Don't just, when your master is around, work really hard, but, but consistently, genuinely, honestly, all the time, Submit yourself to him. I was thinking about this earlier, and I was thinking about it in a little broader application. And uh, I want to share with you a story, a story that you may have have heard me share before. But uh, when I was in high school, I ran track for a while. And uh, in track, I was a long-distance runner. Um, That's what you are on, that's what I was at least, because I wasn't fast. If I was fast, they would have me run short distances. I was slow, so they had me run long distances. And uh, they, I think they thought if I ran long enough, I would eventually quit, which I did. But for a while, I was on the track team, and I was running uh, these long distances. Well, they didn't really know for sure what to do with the distance runners. And so what they would do with us is they would tell us, hey, there is a, a church down this path about three miles away. Go run there and back. And so the distance runners would take off down the path. Well, we would get just beyond the eyesight of the coaches, and there was a water fountain. 
Well, we would stop at the water fountain. You're going to run. You need something to drink. So we'd stop there, but we would stay there, and we would hang out at the water fountain for an appropriate amount of time. You wouldn't want to come back too fast because that might tip, tip, tip your hat. You'd stay there for a little while, and then you would take the water from the water fountain, and you would make yourself wet. Not drowned, but just a little bit wet. You wanted to look like you had a good workout. And then we would run hard back from the water fountain after an appropriate amount of time to be winded enough to make it appear that we had gone on a long run. All of that exercise, all that work, uh, just to have our coach think that we were working hard. Now, anybody here who works as an employee also understands this mentality. There has been a day, a time, a season where you have been around your workplace long enough that you can look like you're working hard. And you want your boss to see that, and you can, you can act in such a way that they think you're really expended, expended when you're really not. What Paul says is, hey, you know what? Jesus sees you when you're at the water fountain or when you're running the full race. Jesus sees you when you're really working hard or when you're acting like you're working hard. And since we're really serving him, then we ought to be submitting to the leadership of, in this case, the master, but by application, us with our employers at all times. He goes on. He says in verse 8, he says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or whether he is free. Part of the reason why slaves are able to persist in this way is that they know that not all of their reward will come in this life. But Jesus, who sees all, will reward us for our secret faithfulness after this life is done. See, slaves were called up. They were seen as someone who was recipients of the blessing of God, morally responsible, and called to follow and submit in a particular way. But he's not done, is he? After calling the slaves over and having a conversation with them and calling them up, he comes back and he says, okay, now to you masters. Paul says, I'm going to tell you something that is going to feel totally wacky, weird. Nobody in our culture would tell you this, but I'm going to tell you this is the way it is in the church. Masters, you are to submit to your slaves. What an impressive thing to say. Masters, you are to submit to your slaves. He says, do the same to them. In other words, as they submit to you, you submit to them. To stop threatening them, knowing that he was both their master and yours in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. What a beautiful thing. He's calling the, the master, he's calling the employer to structure his life for the betterment and the life of the slave or the employee. Why? Because this is the nature of the way it works in the church. We are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, here's what some of this means for us. It has massive implications for our lives because many are parents or will be. And what this is saying is if you are a parent and you are a, in living out your life in relationship with Jesus Christ, if the Spirit of God resides within your heart, you know how we could be able to tell if you are being controlled by the Spirit of God? This passage would tell us that one way we can tell if you're controlled by the Spirit of God is by looking at how you relate to your husband or wife or how you relate to your children. Children, 
talking to high school students, middle school students, elementary school students, any preschoolers and toddlers in the room representing this morning in the big service. Uh, what this is saying is if, if you are in living in relationship with God, if the Spirit of God resides within your heart, you know how we might be able to tell if that Spirit of God is controlling you? Let's see how you're relating to your parents. If you work for somebody and the Spirit of God resides within you, you're a believer in Christ, you know how we can tell if one of the evidences of the controlling influence of the Spirit of God in your life? How you working? Not your capacity and how good you are at your job. I mean, hopefully you're in a job that you're good at. But what's your attitude towards your employer? How hard are you working? One of the things that happens when the Spirit of God controls us is that we're submitting to one another in that respect. If you're an employer, one of the ways that we ought to be able to tell that the Spirit of God is controlling your heart is how you treat your employees. This has huge implications for our, our Christian lives, all under the banner of controlled by the Spirit, evidenced by submitting to one another. Paul's point here, the marginalized are submitted to as well in the church. Well, one other thing that I want us to see before we wrap up our time together today, one second point is this, the gospel is the answer. The gospel is the answer. And I think it's really important for us to see that and remember that because when we, we look at the first century world, it was a world that had some big problems. You know, a world where there are 60 million people owned by somebody else, that's a big problem. That is a big problem. I mean, by any definition, by any estimation, that is a big problem when you have that many slaves in the world. And yet, we're surprised when we read the New Testament that at no point are believers in Christ called to march and picket on Rome. Nowhere is that found. At no point are they called to, to, to oust Caesar. As a matter of fact, what they're, they're called to do is, is slaves are called to obey their masters. We read that and we're confused. How could this possibly be? Uh, and, and it's important for us to reflect on it because though slavery, at least in our country, is, is gone or is at least in most instances is gone, there are some big problems in our world today too. There, there's human trafficking of individuals held against their will in, in this country and, and in other places. It's a reality. It's a big problem. There's abortion. It's a, it's a big problem in our world. These are some of the, the big issues that we face. There's poverty around the globe. These kinds of things are big problems that the world faces. And so when we see the New Testament somewhat accepting one of the big problems of the first century, it it's, causes us to scratch our head a little bit and wonder what a Christian's to do today. Well, I think one thing that's important for us to remember is that the world in which we live today, the political climate of America today, is different than the political climate of the Roman Empire. You see, they didn't have the opportunity to, to vote like we vote. They didn't have the opportunity to have this representative government and change things in those ways like we do. And so, though the New Testament doesn't prescribe that, I certainly don't think that that is something that we should not do. As a Christian voter, we should be influenced by our beliefs in Christ. If you are a legislator, you should legislate influenced by your belief in Christ. If you have the opportunity to help someone in suffering, the Spirit of God absolutely can work within our hearts and lives to have us help solve some of these big problems and address them in different ways. 
But I think what this passage does indicate to us is that there is a priority that comes even before our ability to help alleviate physical suffering. You see, in the big problems of the world, the answer ultimately is the gospel. Listen to how Warren Wiersbe talks about this issue. He says, just as the preaching of Wesley and Whitfield resulted in the abolition of slavery and child labor, the elevation of women and the care of the needy, so Paul's ministry contributed to the death of slavery and the encouragement of freedom. However, he was careful not to confuse the social system with the spiritual order of the church. The Christian faith does not bring about harmony by erasing social or cultural distinctions. Servants are still servants when they trust Christ, and masters are still masters. Rather, the Christian faith brings harmony by working in the heart. Christ gives us a new motivation, not a new organization. What this is saying is that the, the tact of the New Testament is that a priority is given to the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is ultimately the answer to every question that exists in the heart of men and women? It is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. What is the, the hope for spousal abuse? something that exists all over um, our world today. What is the solution to that? Well, the solution to that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's people coming into a relationship with Jesus, having their hearts so changed and transformed that they are controlled by the Spirit of God and they relate to one another in a different way. What is the, the hope for the family? What is the hope for families relating in a way that is loving and caring of children who are growing up as, as well-adjusted and good contributors to society and who love the Lord and are difference makers for him? What is the, the hope of that? The hope of that is found in people, children, and parents trusting in Christ, being controlled by the Spirit of God, and living out a different way of relating to one another. What is the hope for the world in terms of our employers and employees and, and slaves and big problems in the world? The hope is for people to come into a relationship with Christ, have their hearts transformed in such a way that they relate to one another in a totally different fashion. You see, Jesus is concerned about the big problems of the world, but he's going to change it a heart at a time. And here's the thing, folks. We have such a privilege as we go out as representatives of Christ to not only help people with the big issues of our day, we can be a part of that. But as we do that, we must give a priority to the gospel because when, though, when people come into a relationship with Christ, it ultimately leads them to the revolution of heart that is necessary for true change. Let me, let me pray. Father, thank you for your love for us and, and your care for us. Thank you for just the opportunity you've given us to, to worship today. And Father, we, as we end today, we want to continue to lift your name up and sing. We want to praise you for what you have done for us, and we want to seek a life that is dependent upon you, the God who is near. As you transform us into a different way of relating to one another. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.